We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today. Sam Fortier from the Washington Post will jump on with us in a few minutes. Sam's just leaving Ashburn after day two of mandatory minicamp. He's also written this morning about the quarterback competition. I put that in air quotes. Uh, But uh, Sam will talk to us about what he thinks and what he's learned. Uh, He's the one, by the way, yesterday who asked Ron Rivera um, uh, if there's still, uh, in his view, if he thinks there's still a quarterback competition. And Ron Rivera said, I do think there's a quarterback competition. So we'll talk to Sam about that and a lot more as day two of minicamp is now over. And then after Sam, our good friend Steve Sands from the Golf Channel and from NBC Sports. Steve will jump on with us to explain the bombshell announcement from yesterday regarding the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. Uh, We'll get him to walk through what this means, um, and I think he will be able to uh, explain it uh, very well. He's usually very good at doing that. So Sam Fortier first, and then Steve Sands uh, after that. Uh, before that, a couple of things to get to. First of all, let me uh, mention that today's show is brought to you by our good friends at My Bookie. Go to mybookie.com or mybookie.ag and use my promo code KevinDC to secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. You have to use my promo code KevinDC to claim your bonus. Uh, Miami tonight in Game 3 of the NBA Finals, a a 2.5-point underdog to Denver uh, at MyBookie. MyBookie's got all of the NFL uh, prop bets for the upcoming season, the week one lines. Uh, You can find the week two lines at MyBookie if you're interested uh, in that. uh, But go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. By the way, on the radio show today, Randy Whitman uh, was my guest. We've had Randy on the podcast. We've had him on the radio show. He's excellent as a guest, um, as a basketball analyst. Uh, we talked a lot about the NBA Finals, but we also talked a lot about, for you Maryland basketball fans, Big Ten basketball, because he helps out 
Uh, Mike Woodson, the head coach at Indiana, uh, Randy Whitman's alma mater. Mike Woodson was his teammate on the Bobby Knight teams in the mid to late uh, 70s. Uh, But Randy Whitman, uh, always an excellent guest. I always enjoy uh, talking to him. You can listen to that at the team980.com or by downloading the Odyssey app. I do want to read a review, by the way. Um, This review comes from comes from Johnny So Saucy. Johnny So Saucy wrote a nice review on Apple Podcasts uh, reviews, gave us five stars, and he wrote, Nuggets slash Skins fan from Colorado. Kevin, I finally got around to writing you a review. Never been to D.C. I'm from Colorado. My father has been a huge Skins fan ever since they lost to the undefeated Dolphins in 1972. So naturally, I became a diehard Skins fan watching them my whole life. I also, in capital letters, he writes, really hate the Cowgirls. So again, naturally, I became a a Redskins fan at a young age. I'm also a huge Nuggets fan. So to hear you talk about my favorite football team is one thing, but I've been loving your analysis on the Nuggets. Tom is dead wrong when saying this isn't some of the most high-level basketball play we've ever seen. It is. I believe this Nuggets team will win multiple championships. We haven't seen a team this talented since the 72-win Chicago Bulls team. I don't know, maybe I'm biased in saying that, but it's been exceptional basketball play from Denver. Anyway, greatly appreciate the show. Love the podcast guests you have on, especially the recent podcast talking about the NFL rest metrics. Yeah, that was um, with Warren Sharp. Uh, right? I think it was with Warren Sharp um, talking about sort of the NFL schedule and looking at the day's rest that teams have. And Washington's at the top of the list in terms of the most rest days uh, on their NFL schedule this year. And that has in recent years translated into more over their season totals than under. And if you have less rest, it's a better bet in recent years to bet under the season total. Washington's season total, by the way, at my bookie, uh, I've got to pull it back up, but I think it was six and a half recently in terms of their over-under number for the upcoming season. Uh, Regular season wins. Washington at mybookie.com, mybookie.ag, their over-under number is six and a half. Um, over six and a half, you have to lay minus 121. Under six and a half, you have to lay minus 101. But because they have, uh, along with I think it was the Bears and somebody else, the most rest days between games uh, in aggregate over the total uh, entirety of the season, um, the Warren, Warren Sharp suggested that this should lead you to consider betting the over. Uh, six and a half on Washington this year. I wish their number were at eight and a half, and betting over would mean a winning season. That would be nice to have a winning season, to win nine games or more for the first time since 2016. That would be nice. 
but anyway, I'll read from the rest of the review from Johnny So Saucy. Uh, Johnny writes, uh, anyway, greatly appreciate the show. Love the podcast. Uh, love the NFL rest metrics podcast. That's exactly why you are my favorite skins podcast to listen to. You always have great outside the box that bring incredible perspective to the game of football. Keep them coming, Kevin. God bless you. And HTTR sincerely, John from Northern Colorado. Uh, thank you, John, for that very nice review and the five stars. If you haven't rated or reviewed us on Apple or Spotify, um, it would be great if you would do it. Uh, takes 30 seconds, five stars, one to two sentences. You don't have to write as much as John did, but I appreciate that, John, and I appreciate everything you wrote. Also, it's important to follow us on Apple and Spotify. That's a big help as well. If you hit that follow button uh, on the uh, Apple podcast um, app homepage, it's in the upper right-hand corner on Spotify. It's down the left-hand side, about midway down. Uh, Most of you do listen on Apple podcasts, uh, on your iPhones, I I would imagine. Um, Many of you listen on Spotify. Uh, Many of you listen on lots of other podcast platforms. Some of you even listen through our website, thekevinsheehanshow.com. But certainly, uh, if you haven't rated or reviewed us, and if you haven't followed us, it's a big help for us uh, if you can do it. Um, By the way, uh, on tonight's game, I don't have a good feel for it at all. I'm just enjoying watching these games. At this point, I don't know if I would even think about betting against Miami. I still think Denver will win the series, and I think Denver will win the series in seven games. That was my pick before the series started. I was wobbly after game one, um, but I think we'll see a longer series. But at this point, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> this is unpredictable. But Miami's you know, too well-coached, too tough, too resilient um, to, I think, you know, lose the next three anyway. So I, I think we're going to see at least a six-game series. Uh, the ratings, by the way, for the NBA Finals are down as anticipated because of the two markets and the two teams that are in it. The you know ratings were through the roof through the first three rounds of the postseason, through the conference finals. Um, but I think everybody that follows this stuff expected a step back with Denver-Miami, especially considering last year we had Golden State and Miami. Um, all right, uh, just a couple of things to get to real quickly before we bring uh, Sam uh, 48 onto the show. Uh, first of all, today is the day that Josh Harris is meeting with, uh, along with Mitchell Rails, by the way, and I think a few others, meeting with the NFL's finance committee in New York. Now, as of the recording of this podcast, I don't have any of what's coming out of this, but I think what we hope will come out of it is they have, you know, come to an agreement on any sort of tweaks to the financial structure of the deal. Hopefully the finance committee at this point and the league has finished finished the vetting of all of the limited partners. I mean, how long can that actually take? And maybe we'll get, you know, some sort of indication that the 32 owners, uh, which would include the Snyders at this point, will vote sooner rather than later. Um, I, you know, even in the post story this morning written by 
Mark Maskey and Nikki Javala, you know, in uh, in one of the last paragraphs, they still talk about that, you know, they're hopeful of getting a, a vote by late July or August. Uh, I don't know why they should wait that long. Um, do if, if the Finance Committee and the Josh Harris Group can get whatever, you know, outstanding items uh, are out there, uh, you know, agreed upon, let's get this thing to the owners and have them vote by Zoom. But as we've talked about before, apparently they don't do that. Um, and they're on their vacations and they won't do it by conference call or won't do it by Zoom and they'll do it when they do it. I think that's ridiculous. I think this sale is different, as I've discussed before. I think they're holding up, you know, a market that's waited a long time for this. And they should feel very, very fortunate that Dan's gone or is about to be gone and somebody paid $6 billion for the team. By the way, there are pictures of Josh Harris and Mitchell Rails arriving at NFL offices in Manhattan for this meeting. And if you haven't seen it, and I'm sure you have at this point, and my son, my youngest son, lives in New York, and he was sending us pictures earlier this morning. Uh, The smoke from all of those wildfires in Canada. I mean, New York's sky is yellow. They have the worst air quality by uh, um, an amount of double the next worst in the world right now. And our air quality here in D.C. is terrible as well. And I I ran out between the radio show and the recording of this podcast to get some lunch. And it is hazy and it is smoky. Um, I had Doug Cameron on the radio show this morning as well, our good friend from Channel 4, the weather guy from Channel 4. Doug's a great guy. And he did say that he's got, uh, you know, hope that the winds will change and that the smoke will be gone by the time we get to the weekend. But a wild scene for those of us on the East Coast, the Northeast in particular, and, you know, areas in the Midwest, like Detroit apparently is really awful uh, as well. But, um, yes, today was uh, the day, and that meeting is taking place right now in the NFL offices in Manhattan between Josh Harris, uh, Mitchell Rails, um, and... I would imagine maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know who else from the Harris group is there, but hopefully they can get things worked out and we can get this thing moving and finalized. Um, I also wanted to play this for you. This was five years ago tonight. Off the face of the Capitals have won it. The capital of the country is the capital of the hockey playoffs. They rush out onto the ice to congratulate Braden Holtby. The Washington Capitals, for the first time in their 44-year history, are the Stanley Cup champions. I can't believe it's been five years since the Caps won the Stanley Cup. The great Doc Emmerich, by the way, on the call that night, uh, out in Vegas as the Caps won the game 4-3 to to win the series four games to one. I'll still never forget the Alex Ovechkin just screaming out with incredible joy uh, as if truly a 10,000-pound lead weight uh, was lifted off of his shoulders. Uh, An incredible memory from five years ago tonight. And look, I've mentioned this many times over the years. I'm not a Caps fan. Um, I just, for whatever reason, I just have never really taken – to the Caps. I, I'm not a big hockey fan, especially during the regular season. I do love the playoffs. I've actually watched a couple 
of the periods from these first two Stanley Cup games. Uh, and they've both been, you know, won easily um, by Vegas. But that run by the Capitals uh, back in 2018 uh, to a Stanley Cup was really quite incredible. You know, the thing about that run, if you recall, is it started very, you know, ominously. I mean, they were nearly out in the first round of the postseason against, by the way, Columbus. Uh, Columbus won those first two games of that series in overtime in Washington. And the Caps were on their way back to Columbus down 2 nothing, And then they were down in Game 3. Uh, or it, it went to overtime in Game 3, if I recall. I, I forget if they were down in that game. But Game 3 went to overtime, so they were one shot away uh, from being down 3 nothing. Uh, and then, of course, in the conference finals, they were down 3-2 against Tampa and had to win in Tampa in Game 7, and they won Games 6 and 7 both by shutouts, Braden Holtby. Uh, was uh, was amazing. Um, and then they got Vegas. They lost that first game. Game two will forever be remembered for that Braden Holtby uh, save, which was incredible. Um, and then uh, they won the two home games and won game five in Vegas to win uh, the Stanley Cup. But, you know, the, ho- the hockey postseason is a true crapshoot. I mean, we've seen it this year. You know, Boston, best record during the regular season, and out, you know, out in the first round to a team in Florida who was essentially the eighth seed, and they're in the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, amazingly. Um, And Washington, that particular year, you know, it was... They're they're on the ropes. They're on the ropes, by the way, against Bobrovsky, the the goaltender for Florida right now. He was the goaltender for Columbus, uh, if you recall. He's the goaltender for Florida in the Stanley Cup Finals right now. And they're on the verge, potentially, of going down three games to nothing in their first-round series. Uh, And then, you know, they were in trouble against Tampa, down 3-2. Um, but they survived and they ended up winning a Stanley Cup. And that is, you know, massive for Ted Leonsis. You know, I would never, ever suggest for a second that Ted Leonsis and Dan Snyder, you know, belong in the same sentence together. They don't. Ted is a totally different human being, number one. Number two, he has built good businesses in professional sports, built good businesses. Dan inherited a good business and screwed it up. Uh, The Caps were, you know, not the business that they are today. Certainly drafting Alex Ovechkin and having that opportunity was huge. But I've said this all along. Ted understands the customer, and he treats the customer much differently you know, than the uh, uh, than Dan Snyder. But with respect to results of the teams that he owns, if they hadn't gotten that cup in 2018, you know, I don't know that he'd get the pass that he gets. And I, I don't, I'm not even suggesting he gets a pass. I think a lot of us who are diehard Wizards fans understand what's gone on here over a long period of time. And um, and you know, I don't even blame him for keeping Ernie as long as he did. I, I, I know most of you do, 
Um, I don't blame him for turning it over to Tommy Shepard, but I do blame him for consistently, you know, thinking small when it's come to the basketball franchise. I, I would prefer to have that for them to have thought big all along, even if that meant, you know, not trying to create teams that could win 43, 44 games and get a playoff series. Uh, by the way, uh, Randy Whitman and I were talking about some of their playoff series that he coached. I thought, and I've said this before, I think Randy was an excellent basketball coach. You ask any basketball person, um, they, they'll tell you Randy Whitman could X and O it up with anybody. Um, and those teams were pretty decent teams. You know, John Wall doesn't get hurt in 2015. They're in the Eastern Conference Finals against Cleveland. Hell, in that first year where they went to the postseason, they won twice at Indiana. Almost won three times at Indiana. Ended up losing that series because they couldn't win a home game. Um, but they were close to the Eastern Conference Finals that year. I think Randy was a much better basketball coach than Scott Brooks was. I think Scott Brooks may have been better on the getting along with players kind of a thing, which I know is important in the NBA. Um, But uh, the basketball franchise has been a disaster forever. Uh, And the hockey franchise, if they hadn't gotten the cup, they would have been one of the more disappointing franchises in NHL history to have a guy that will ultimately be the all-time leading goal scorer um, and having gone to just you know, one NHL finals. Uh, now they did win it. And and if they hadn't won it that year, I'm just saying that's sort of the category that they would be in. By the way, speaking of the basketball team, you know, they, they are on the verge, hasn't been officially announced of hiring that GM Will Dawkins. And everybody seems excited about their three hires here. And we will see. They've got to draft well. They've got to find a player that's a top five talent you know, and develops into that in three to four years. Um, And I don't know if they'll do that or not. Uh, They drafted very well in Oklahoma City. But I mentioned uh, and played the highlight for you about five years ago. uh, Tonight was the win in the Stanley Cup. Well, 45 years ago tonight, this happened. So we're coming down to this, a cliffhanger. They give it to Dennis Johnson. He'll spin the left side to the corner. Long jumper off the back of the rim. Until the long rebound. Shovels to Dandridge. The Bonds are going to win for the first time in 36 years. Washington, D.C. has a major sports world champion. June 7th, 1978. The Bullets won the NBA title. That was the Frank Herzog call of the final few seconds of Game 7 in Seattle. Washington had won Game 6 at home to force a 7th and deciding game. Game 6, by the way, is one of those games that's available on YouTube. The whole Game 6. You want to hear how loud and how raucous and how into it Bullets fans were back then? Uh, Go find that thing and watch that. They dominated Game 6. They won by 35 points at the time. I think it was the largest margin of victory ever in an NBA Finals game. They went back to Seattle for the seventh and deciding game, and they won it 105-99. Wes Unseld hit a couple of key free throws late, and Washington had uh, their first major pro sports champion in 36 years, as Frank Herzog had said. The 36 years prior to that was the 1942 Redskins who had won 
the world championship. Uh, but that was quite a memory from uh, my um, my uh, from being a young person and being at a lot of those games uh, in '78 and '79 specifically uh, with my dad and going to a lot of those Bullets playoff games were great. And that's when I became just a massive Bullets fan. Uh, and I would like them to be called the Bullets again, uh, but I don't think that'll ever happen. All right, um, up next, Sam Fortier from the Washington Post, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, jumping on with us right now is Sam Fortier from the Washington Post. At Sam, the number four TR on Twitter. He's just leaving Ashburn after day two of minicamp, and he's written a column um, about the quarterback situation. Yeah, we're going to talk about the quarterback situation again. Uh, Why not? Um, This column is titled, The Commanders Are All In on Sam Howell. But don't forget Jacoby Brissett. And we played Sam's questions to Ron Rivera yesterday and Ron Rivera's answers. So uh, when you say, and I know you don't write the headlines, uh, but when you say, uh, or when the headline says, don't forget about Jacoby Brissett, um, what does that mean? Do you believe that Brissett's actually got a shot at this thing? No, in the sense that I don't think he will outplay Sam Howell and win the job in camp. I think that they will give Sam every chance to win the job. And basically, if it makes sense to not lose the job. I mean, I think that this is Sam Howell's job because for a lot of reasons. I think that his promise, his mobility, um, the ability that, that Ron Rivera could have in this regime would have to sell a vision to new ownership. Hey, we have a young ascending quarterback and a lot more attractive than you know, basically we punted on the situation again and we have to go find one. There's a lot of reasons why I think uh, Sam Howell, you know, is the guy. But if he does get injured, if he does fall apart, which I don't think is out of the question, I'm not saying it's likely, but I don't think it's impossible, Jacoby Brissett will be their guy. And, you know, it, it, it felt valuable to me to revisit where he's at, particularly because Ron Rivera is still maintaining this competition. I know he's just saying that. Um, but it, it felt worth revisiting where Jacoby Brissett is at, considering that this team has not only used one quarterback over a whole season since 2017. 
Right. So I, I want to keep the conversation to be, you know, opening day, September 10th, coming out of camp, barring injury, what we think will happen. And by the way, I'm glad you asked those questions yesterday because the bottom line is we don't know what we're going to get from Ron Rivera with these answers because it tends to be the most convenient answer or the one that he thinks he can sell the most in the moment. You know, it's not the first time he's talked about competition with, you know, the hope of, of Sam Howell is kind of, you know, getting these first opportunities. But you said something, and I want to make sure I'm clear on this. You said that you don't think it'll be Jacoby Brissett because you don't think Brissett will beat Sam Howell out. Like, you know, as in beat him out clearly, you know, um, where they have no choice. Why do you think that? Well, I, I want to be clear that I, I do think that he won't outplay him, but even if he does outplay him, I still think that the team could opt, you know, and, and actually, if we could pause here, who ultimately makes this decision? Eric Bieniemy. To me, and I think Eric Bieniemy. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think that you know, if if Brissett clearly outplayed Howell, I wonder if if Ron Rivera would put his thumb on the scale there, or at least make a strong argument. Because I think we're we're in agreement that Eric Bieniemy makes that call. That's a part of you know giving him the autonomy and, and saying, hey, come in and build this offense. But I think that if if Brissett clearly outplayed Howell, then they would have a little bit more interesting of a situation. But I think that the enemy and Rivera and everybody else is pretty much on the same page that they need to figure out what they have in Sam Howell. They need to, you know, basically give him this offense and say, hey, you know, could he be the guy? Because we think it's possible, but you know, maybe you know, nobody knows how likely it is right now. He has a higher floor, and excuse me, he has a higher ceiling, but a lower floor than Brissett. They got to figure out what they have. So. I don't think Brissett will outplay him, but I also think that even I don't I don't think it's possible even if he did that that would result in him being the starter. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean I think the way I have framed it is you know Ty goes to Hal and even a narrow loss in a you know in whatever this competition or whatever the reps look like that goes to Sam Hal too. As long as they believe coming out of the summer that there is a potential future with Sam Hal. But the way that it would be flipped and Jacoby Brissett would be the starter on opening day is if it becomes clear to Eric Bieniemy and and, and maybe by extension everybody else that Sam Howell's such a developmental project and there's no guarantee at the end of it that or or there's it's not that the, 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 there's no guarantee that the the feeling is that at the end of it they likely wouldn't have a bona fide starter in the NFL. I mean they've all been around guys. They know what they look like even at this stage. Um and if they felt that way, then Bienemy's got to be careful because Either he has to develop Sam Howell, there's got to be incremental progress, so at the end of the year it looks like Eric Bieniemy did a great job with Sam Howell, Sam, regardless of the record, or he's got to elevate this offense to a level that, you know, combined with what we think will be a really good defense, you end up with a winning team and potentially a playoff team, and that might be with Brissett. I'm glad you brought up the tie to Eric Bieniemy because obviously he, he bet a lot by coming here. He bet big on saying, hey, this is the opportunity in which I will show everyone. It wasn't just Patrick Mahomes. It wasn't just Andy Reid. I am a brilliant offensive mind in my own right. And so to me, like you said, like if he knows it, – it, here's the thing. The home run for Eric Bieniemy is you take Sam Howell and you turn him into a really good quarterback and your offense is great and, and you pick up from, from where you were. I think 
if, you know, they're a mediocre offense that has some moments, I think that Eric Bimmy can say, hey, look, you know, I did my absolute best, but I was saddled by an inexperienced quarterback or an inherently limited quarterback in Joey Brissett. The thing that I think would reflect poorly on him is if this, you know, this offense doesn't make any progress from last year, which I don't think will happen. But if they come out and if Sam Howell is unplayable and Joey Brissett takes a massive step back, I think that's when you start saying, okay, maybe, maybe it's not the ingredients, maybe it's the cook, and, and maybe Eric Bieniemy was benefiting from Andy Reid and, and Patrick Mahomes and all of the guys they had on offense. Um, again, I don't think that's the likeliest scenario, but I think that's the only way Eric Bieniemy really loses. And so him going to Jacoby Brissett, to me, would be the more conservative, the safer option. Hey, you know, he can still do what we want to do, but just not as well as Sam. And I think one of the things that, that's, been, that's highlighted that to me is how much Tavita Pritchard, the new quarterback's coach, loves running off-platform drills. You know, the, the five practices we've seen so far this spring, that is a thing they are doing constantly. It's pretty much baked into every position drill, and it's not something you saw Scott Turner and Ken Zampese do as much. This is, you know, today it was, you know, shuffling through the bags uh, and, and, like, kind of underhand tossing the ball back and forth and then making a quick throw at the end of it. You know, every, every play has a has a component where you're shuffling your feet, I feel like, and, you know, hey, the blitz is coming, you gotta lob, you know, you got to lob it up against cover zero off your back foot. They, they drill that so much, and, and that is not bad at that by any means. So it's such, maybe it's such a big part of this offense, I think that's where you have to say Sam Howell is going to be your guy that unlocks this thing if you can get him there. By the way, I want to just make sure everybody's clear on this. When you say they're, they're working on off-platform, you're talking about actually practicing kind of off-schedule plays by the quarterback. Yeah, absolutely. It's not all, right. hey, this is a three-step drop, this is a five-step drop, seven-step. It's, hey, you know, in this situation, you're flushed out, or, or a guy's in your face, or, you know, you take two-and-a-half steps, but the guy's on the rushes in your face, you've got to just lob this thing off your back foot. And they are, that is not something they did a ton of last year. Cooley used to say to me all the time, he goes, I have told Jay, I've told Sean, I've told everybody, why don't we practice the off-schedule stuff, the – um, you know, our, our first, second, third options not there. Why don't we practice quarterback? You know, off schedule, trying to make a play in what everybody else's role should be. Um, and it sounds maybe like they did that in Kansas City. So I, I want to just go back to the enemy thing for a moment because I don't know why we are. And I'm not saying that you're the only one because I think a lot of people are completely discounting the possibility that we get through a summer and Sam isn't what they have, you know, claimed him to be in their moments of kind of this used car sales pitch that we've heard from them on occasion. You know, mock drafters had him ranked much higher. You know, receivers couldn't believe last year in practice how the ball was there when they turned around. You know, all of the Ron moments where it's been like he's been pitching, you know, um, some old, you know, Oldsmobile on, on a lot somewhere. Why, why are we so bought into, well, really, the floor is kind of high with Sam Howell. Oh, I, I am not bought in on, on the floor is high with Sam Howell, certainly. I mean, I said earlier, I think that the floor is much lower with Sam than it is with Jacoby just because he's thrown 19 passes yes. in the NFL. Like, like, he could be anything. And I think that, like, you know, it's funny. Jay, I was talking to J.P. Finley on the way out, and, like, he said, you know, that he was asked, I guess, today, like, what grade would you give Sam Howell? 
and he was like, I said C plus, and but but is there a way where it's a good C plus? Like he's looked good, he hasn't been amazing, but like, and and I said, you know, yeah, like he's thrown 19 passes in the NFL. He's had definitely he's had some moments and some throws where you're like, dang, that that you know. It's like that throw, you know, against cover two in Dallas, the whole shot. I mean, he's had those moments, but he's also had plays where you sit there scratching your head. Like, you know, did he get through his first read before he took off? Did he predetermine this, this route that he threw uh, that, that ended up being an interception? I mean, there's just – the guy is, is to me, he is a high-variance player, and not in the same way that Carson Wentz, is, Carson Wentz was, right? Because you knew he was going to make boneheaded mistakes, but he could make those throws. And Sam, I think, is going to make some mistakes too, hopefully not to that degree. But it's, it's, to me, it's just uh, we really don't know what Sam Howell will be. I, no, I totally agree with that. I, I completely agree with that. To me, this whole discussion since, you know, he got the QB1 offseason label in January has been, we don't know, and quite honestly, they don't probably know either. It's a complete mystery. And I guess that's why I just suggested that, uh, and I'm not saying that you know um, that, w- that you didn't uh, talk about the floor being um, you know lower than Jacoby Brissett. I'm just saying that I think that there's this feeling, and maybe it's because of the way they've been pitching him that you know he's going to be right there with Jacoby Brissett. You know, and if if he's not right there, it'll be you know it'll be close enough to where they're going to go with the guy that's young on a rookie deal in hopes that he'll develop into a bona fide quarterback and i'm just saying like you just said i have no idea what will happen but i am not dismissing at all the idea that they get through the end of the summer and eric bianami and ron rivera look at each other and say we can't play him there's a massive difference between brissett and how and even if we think like after 17 starts and learning it and developing there's a chance down the road it's not a great bet to make right now i'm just saying that that to me is still in play absolutely and i think there's two components here like the first one is that i thought that Brissett would have a mental leg up i thought that we would see him have a you know a much more veteran crisp on time, you know, just because of his previous experience, he would look much better in the pocket than Sam Howell does. But actually, that has not been the case as, as far as I've seen it. Like, Brissett has also had some, you know, triple pump moments, some seeming to questioning his reads. And I don't know if that's, hey, there's a new offense and, you're, and it's mini camp and you're just getting it, you know, getting it down, it's going to go away. But, like, it certainly does seem like he has had some of those moments as well. And I think, you know, it's funny with Sam Howell, like, the person who is surprised about the fan base's confidence in him includes him. We, we asked him, like, what is it like to get so much love and, and expectations and praise, you know, from the fan base? They were going nuts for him at, at OTAs. And he was like, yeah, honestly, like, I don't even feel like I deserve it yet. I don't feel like yeah. I've earned yeah. it yet. He said something like that. And so that stuck out to me as, like, he is much more realistic about himself than a lot of these, you know, a, a lot of fans who are, who are getting on the, you know, the Sam Howell bandwagon on I think actually the humility is um, incredibly refreshing uh, to watch um, with him. Um, and every single person I've had on the show that knows him, whether it's Phil Longo, his offensive coordinator at Wisconsin, or Brian Simmons who did the games at Carolina and got to know him a little bit, or the guy that trains him down in Charlotte, 
they have all said the same thing. And I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes you don't get that from, you know, a few people, but it's been consensus that this guy really is a quality kid, quiet maybe, and maybe not as assertive as they'd like him to be, but that he is easily, um, that he's very easy to work with. And there's never going to be the threat of sort of big head uh, getting ahead of of actual, you know, production and accomplishment. So um, I, there was one other thing that I, you know, other than, to, again, I'll stick with, to me, it's a, it's, it, it's a total mystery. And we'll just watch it and we'll see what happens. But there is an advantage, right, built in to a certain extent with the kind of offense that Eric Bieniemy is installing, more West Coast, more get it out quickly, uh, let your playmakers make plays. We'll see, uh, obviously, at some point, a lot of RPO because they ran a lot of it in Kansas City. They ran a ton of it at, at North Carolina um, with Phil Longo and Mac Brown. Um, and to me, like I watched Jacoby Brissett enough, th- that's more suited to sort of Sam Howell's strengths. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely agree. I mean, Jacoby Brissett is not known as a runner. He can. You know, he had, I think it was like five yards of carry last year. I thought actually... He's not immobile. Right, right. He's not immobile. But to me, actually, if you go back and watch his Browns tape, the thing that impressed me the most is like his feel for when he should and could take off. Yeah. Like... I just think that he had a great sense of the moment and, and of the coverage. And, like, that. I didn't go back further than that. But I, that was the thing that impressed me. If you go back and look at the stats, actually, of his rushes, like 58% of them either went for a first down or a touchdown was the, was the best among qualified quarterbacks last year. And that really – I feel like that encapsulates the point of, you know, Sam will almost run – too early. That is the thing he'll lean on. And that's certainly, you know, his last year at Carolina, he did that. And you can argue, oh, his skill players all went to the NFL, blah, blah, blah. But like, that was the thing Sam did as a, a first option. Jacoby has a great feel of when to do it, even though he might not be as good of a runner. So that's something that I'm going to be looking for in preseason games, in, in training camp reps about as these guys learn the offense more, how do they use their legs? Because that will be a component of this offense. But if Sam Howell leans on it, will he do it in an efficient, smart manner? Yeah, um, completely. Uh, and I, I actually am interested to see how much dual threat, um, you know, uh, zone read, et cetera, ends up being put into this offense. Because it's been interesting to me to hear some of the people that really know his game that say that shouldn't be what he does at the pro level. RPO, yes, but a lot of, and even the combination of kind of zone read, you know, meshing into an RPO, which we saw a lot from Philadelphia, we saw and we have from Kansas City as well. That's that's one thing. But true dual threat, you know, where he's posed as a run threat on almost every play that he's, you know, in the shotgun um, uh, is not necessarily what they think he does best, although I thought his mobility in the Dallas game was, was outstanding. Um, um, Ron Rivera mentioned the other day that, and, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote in front of me, that it's going to kind of come down to, you know, the games. And when he said the games, I didn't think he was referring to the regular season games. I actually thought he was referring to the preseason games when he was talking about Hal and Brissett. So do you think that that's going to be a big emphasis? Uh, let's just say that Sam Hal's got a lead. 
Can he give it back during those preseason games? Will they be important? Is that what Ron was talking about? I think so. I, I had the same read on it that you did, and I think the the thing that sticks with me when I'm refer of, of why I'm or I'm explaining that or why I think that that is the case in terms of what Ron was saying is like I go back to last year when Sam in the preseason you know finale at Baltimore he had some really you know they thought he would be further along with his footwork but he had some real things we had to clean up in terms of he wasn't thinking the hitches and the routes you know which was an important really important part of. Scott Turner's offense is an important part of Eric Bieniemy's offense, and it's a thing that they want to see progress from him on. And I think that when Ron initially decided, "Hey, I'm going to go with Taylor in Week 18 against Dallas, not Sam Howell," I think that that had to be a little bit on his mind. Obviously, you know the practice reps were important too, but Sam and he did get some reps when Carson was hurt in that middle of the season stretch where Taylor was starting and he was QB two. But just knowing, like, hey, in the last game I saw this guy. He was not doing the things we needed him to do. I think that sticks with coaches because coaches obviously want as little variance as possible. They want to know exactly what you're going to get from a player uh, when you put him out there. And so I think the games will matter. If Hal has a, a super worst game, is, is that going to be cause for any quarterbacks? No. But if in three games or, or in the first two games anyway that Sam plays, he doesn't look great, Jacoby looks better, then I think, yes, you, you do start saying, maybe I need to make a switch. All right. Um, even though we both admit that we we don't know anything uh, in terms of how this will play out, um, yesterday on the show and on the radio show, I took calls on it, especially after Ron's answer to your question. Percent chance that Jacoby Brissett is the opening day starter against Arizona? Five, ten. Um, maybe that's a little low, actually. That my gut reaction was five to ten, but maybe I'm not. I mean. It's tough, right? Because what what percentage is the uncertainty worth with Sam Howell? Like, I, I don't really know how to right. take that in. And I, I would love for you know some data scientist or whatever to say like, oh, if you, if you really don't know, this is what how you should. If your uncertainty like, level is at a hundred percent, what would that equate to with you know a <laughs> right. a ten yard lead and a one hundred yard dash? Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> look, look, I my immediate answer was one out of five, and I just said, I think there's a 20% chance. And I just think that my reasoning is, I think this is what they want to do. And so I think it's going to really take a caving of sorts by Hal, or it being so obvious to everybody, because every coach has always told us, you can't fool the locker room, and they want to win. Um, where it's just so obvious that Brissett is, you know, better, more, uh, uh, much more ready, and maybe even on the verge of be- having a Geno Smith kind of, car- you know, career year. So I-, I put those chances at one in five, and I said twenty percent. Are you still less than that? Or are you working your way up to my twenty? I-, I think that I I could talk myself into twenty. The more interesting question to me is who is the starting quarterback in week three or four. Because that's when I, I think you start, or maybe it's a little bit later, but, like, I can't be definitive on anything, apparently. But uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I think that, right, like you said, you can't fool the locker room. And if they say, hey, we know that Sam doesn't look as, as good right now, but we think that a, a couple games under his belt, he'll, he'll you know get it all out of the system, he'll be great. Like, that plays in the locker room. But if, if you're in week four and they're one and three or, or they're underperforming or whatever, like then you can't do that anymore. So to me, I would say right now between 10 and 20% seems like the week one odds. But I, I would say, you know, it's 
it might even be off the board in Vegas if we're talking any much further out than that. See, I think if we get to opening day and he's the starter, then there is belief that it might work out, and they're going to give him more than three to four weeks. All right, um, let's get to something else uh, not involving quarterbacks. In the first two days of minicamp, uh, and even the days that you were at OTAs, Give me the things that have stood out to you when you start thinking about writing. What you know? What's interesting to you? Well, it's an extension of the quarterback, but I think the volume of the offense, the multiplicity of the formations, the motions, those things have stood out. Just how much Eric Bieniemy moves guys around, pre-snap alignment has stood out to me. The offensive skill, weapons. The I think the defense. You know, certainly in minicamp with, with Chase and Montez there today. They're you know they're vocalness and just how much of a presence they are, even though you're, you're not going 100%, that stuck out. The, the defensive backs, like how much they're able to rotate those guys around, that's been a big deal. Um, and, and I think that like they have so many options. I think it was just underscored to me today. Like I think they feel like they have three nickels with Rashad Wild Goose, Quan Martin, and, and Benjamin St. Juice. Obviously some of them can be in the Buffalo, some of them can be in regular nickel, but like I think they feel like they really have the depth there um but i think maybe the the biggest thing but the biggest thing for me is probably the offensive line because in otas because of the collision they had the collisions they had last year they lost some practices they've really turned this into more of you know 75 percent speed walk through no full pads there's not you know hitting like there was last year and so you know they, they haven't done hardly any run plays either it's been almost exclusively passing in shorts and shells and so to me, it's like, I Ron Rivera today, you know, how good of a sense do you actually have of your offensive line? You feel good about the additions you made. You feel good about the position flex and the youth and all that. But, like, do you have a handle on where your offensive line is at? And he, like, kind of grimaced almost and said, yeah, you know, it's, it's been a little bit harder, but we love the guys that we have, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, to me, that is – I think you had three problems on offense last year, right? Like, the play calling, the quarterback, and the offensive line – the quarterback we have established pretty extensively that we don't know what's going on there. The play, you know, the play calling, uh, we, we think that, you know, Eric Benjamin will be a step forward. But the offensive line, I think, is, is a huge question mark as well. Charles Leno reported to camp uh, for, for mandatory minicamp. He was not at OTAs. And he said, you know, obviously all the right things. I, I think that, you know, we have a really good group. I think that we can be much better than last year. And, and just it looks, when you watch their pass sets, when you, when you look at the body types, like Sadiq Charles, at left guard and Sam Cosby at right guard are just much more athletic. They're, they're much more mobile, and I think they're going to be better for outside zone runs and, and some of these other things that, that Andrew Norwell and Trey Turner were not. But I still think it's a pretty big question of, is this group dramatically better than last year? And I would argue that last year they had one of, if not the worst offensive line in the league. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um you know, Doc said the same thing to me yesterday in the pod. He said, what's obvious is that they're more athletic. Uh, we don't know how that will play out. You know, um, I think the last time we talked, you used the description, you know, did they solve this with quantity or quality? And we won't know um, until they start to hit the people in front of them and their running backs running behind them and there's legitimate pressure pressure on the quarterback and they've got to protect. But um uh, give me, and we'll finish up with this. Give me a player right now that you've got a gut feel about. Maybe it's none. 
you know, but is there a player that you have a gut feel based on you watching or based on what you're hearing from other coaches that is going to be kind of a significant contributor um, in a way that maybe most of us aren't thinking right now? I mean, I feel like people are are aware of how much Quan Martin will play, you know, between, you know, the nickel and safety and some of the things he can do. And and maybe, like, I kind of think he's flown under the radar, even though he'll be the stark starting Mike linebacker. But I think Cody Barton is going to be actually a pretty good addition. And, and famous last words talking about linebackers in this defense. But, like, he is bigger than Cole Holcomb. I have been impressed by, you know, his, his movement at his size. Jamin Davis was on the field today, even though, you know, he still is working back from the knee, but he was in some defense install walkthroughs. And just even even though, you know, you don't get a great feel off that, I just, I've been impressed the more that I've watched him, kind of his fluidity and his command of this defense, which he said is more complex than the one he came from in Seattle. But I guess I was pretty skeptical when they first signed him that this guy who was pretty much a special teams guy for three years and then became a starting Mike linebacker once was going to translate. But I, I do think he is going to be a bigger part of this than, than I expected. I think if they do that Cinco package with five down defensive linemen, you know, Jamin will probably be the linebacker on the field, but I think Cody Barton could still handle that. And and I don't know if I really embraced the premise of your question. By no, I think you did. A guy we knew that was going to No, you start, did. But okay, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, because I, I – I've, I've, I've talked about this a few times, just, you know, the different names that I'm hearing from various people out there. Like last year, from the jump, it was like, wow, Jahan Dotson's the real deal. Um, and it was just so obvious to everybody. By the way, I think they've said the same thing about Emmanuel Forbes. But I remember last year specifically hearing about um, about a guy that didn't make a big contribution, but I'm hearing things about him again this year, and it's at the same position, and that is Kalik Hudson, that they actually think that he has a chance to really make a contribution. And by the way, overall, just how much more confident they are in the linebacking situation than maybe a lot of fans are. Not only Cody Barton, but what Jamin Davis has the chance to be in year three in, by the way, year two of, of the position that he should have been playing when he came out. Absolutely, and I think that uh, one of the things about Kalik Hudson that's interesting to me is he played, I think he played really well in that Dallas game, right? And right. So it's kind of it's, it's waiting. How much do you judge a guy off his first, you know, two years and 16, 17 uh, versus, you know, that one last game when he flashed when it seemed like Dallas, you know, really wasn't in it as much as, as you would expect it because he did play well, and I don't mean to take that away from him, but how do you, you know, compensate for that? Because then Jack Del Rio comes out, you know, what was it, last week, and he, you know, really praises Khalid Hudson, and he says, you know, this is going to be a challenge for Jamin. And how much of that is we love what Kalik is doing. We think that he's, you know, going to, you know, take a real step forward this year. And how much of it is him just sure. doing what he did last year and kind of getting on Jamin and using this as a tactic. I don't have those answers, but I do think that, that Kalik has looked pretty good this year, especially in coverage. There's been a couple times where Sam or Jacoby has, has had a particularly nice place ball down the sideline or whatever, but he has looked sticky in coverage. So I do think that, you know, if you're talking about those three as the top three linebackers, I don't think you feel awesome. I mean, none of them are Fred Warner or whatever, but but they are, I think, a solid unit, which is is probably notable considering how much you and I talked or how much other people talked going into the offseason about how linebacker was something they needed to address significantly. All right, let's finish up with kind of the obligatory Chase Young 
question and answer. And I'll just ask you this. I mean, off of, you know, a 24-hour period where everybody was kind of saying the right things. And, I mean, Albert Breer described his performance in minicamp practice yesterday as phenomenal. Um, But how do you answer the question, uh, what is your gut feel on how he will do in the upcoming produce or else season for him? I I think that it's up to him. I mean, he decided not to come. I think that's totally his prerogative. If he believes that, you know, being in Colorado is going to be better for him, then, you know, you have to, you have to say, okay, like that's, that's your choice. It really, to me, goes back to, you know, I sat down with Chase before the 2021 season when he, you know, didn't come the first time. And I, I, you know, we talked and he said, look, I had to come in, you know, to this team and I had to be no BS, right? No BS. Uh, I had to show up and play before I could really talk and lead. At the end of 2020, he showed up and he led, you know, and and he really embraced, I think, the role that the team gave him because he played well. But, I mean, is he going to have this breakout year? I I don't know. He he is doing the same processes, and if he's healthy, will will it lead to a different result? I don't know. But I think that, like, that's what he is betting on, and you got to respect that. Thank you, Sam Fortier from The Washington Post, at Sam4TR on Twitter. I always enjoy it with you. Thanks. Of course. Thanks for having me, Kevin. All right, up next, Steve Sands from the Golf Channel, from NBC, our good friend Steve, to explain everything that happened yesterday between the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. We'll get to that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, jumping on with us right now uh, is a good friend, Steve Sands from the Golf Channel and NBC. Uh, He will be, by the way, this weekend on the call in the booth for the RBC Canadian Open uh, up in Toronto. He's on his way up there right now. By the way, what a week to kind of have those responsibilities at a PGA Tour event. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see how we handle the telecast from from our side, but also more importantly, it's about the players, it's about the competition. Rory McIlroy, Kevin, is the defending champion. Rory McIlroy has been the face and the voice of this PGA Tour versus Live thing for the last eighteen months or so. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what what he has to say. I'm looking forward to catching up with him later this afternoon. Yeah. Um, all right. So. Look, you you know, and you're a listener to the show, and you have a sense for those of us um, that you know obsess on on other sports, but not so much this sport. You know, I love it, but not everybody does, and I don't think everybody's followed this story. So, in total, sort of elementary terms, explain to everybody what happened yesterday. Basically, what happened yesterday is. The PIF, which is a private investment fund of Saudi Arabia, which is worth, I believe, in excess of a trillion dollars. Um, they basically run all the money um, for Saudi Arabia as far as you know, investing money throughout the world in sports and in business. They bought the PGA Tour, Kevin. Um, they have their own entity called Live Golf that started a year ago. Actually, this week was the first tournament a year ago. They took a bunch of PGA Tour players, paid them tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and the game was fractured at the highest level for the last year, year and a half. Yesterday, the PGA Tour announced, uh, unbeknownst to almost everybody, uh, including the players, uh, that it was going to merge with Live Golf, with the PIF, the Private Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, and the DP World Tour, which is the European Tour, uh, it now has a sponsor called DP World, but it's the European Tour, for those familiar, uh, in golf circles in the United States. And they're going to form what seems like uh, a world tour, whatever it's going to be called. They haven't decided yet, but the man who runs the PIF, Kevin, uh, is a man named Yasser, and he is going to be the chairman of this new entity. So basically, if you think about it in Baseball, basketball, hockey, and football, you know, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball, the PGA Tour being the fifth largest sport in America, the PGA Tour was bought by the PIF yesterday. All right, so um, that is different than the original headlines, which was kind of a merger um, between these things. What did the PIF pay for the PGA Tour? Well, that hasn't been determined yet because they were afraid that the news was going to be leaked out and they wanted to get it out on their own. So 
it's it, it's one of the fascinating things about what we do for a living, Kevin. And we're, I mean, we're not in the news business. I do play by play for a living, and you you know you do you know radio, sports radio, and podcasts. But in the news world of journalism, this was going to get leaked out at some point. And the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, the PIF, Live Golf, they wanted to make sure that they were the ones controlling the narrative. So they put it out there yesterday, but the details aren't fully baked. So we don't know exactly what the dollar amount is as far as what the PIF is going to be pumping into this new entity. Um, you know, for now, it's called the PGA Tour. Hopefully, for golf fans in the United States and those of us who are old school, um, you know, and know that that's the biggest brand in the game, hopefully it remains that name, um, and just for familiarity reasons. And we just don't know what all the details are. Will it be a full world tour? How many billions of dollars? And it is in the billions, would it be? Uh, how much money are they pumping into this? Nobody really knows just yet. All right. I, I want to get to, you know, the players' reactions, the fact that this was a major bombshell for them yesterday, the PGA Tour players, and go back and look at those players that turned down the big money versus those that did. But I, I still want to get to what this means from a golf fan perspective because, all right, we all know right. the PGA Tour players are pissed, but what – what, do you have any sense of what this purchase and this kind of me- melding of of these tours is going to mean for fans? Like, what are we going to watch? Are we going to watch something? You said it. You think it's going to be called the PGA Tour. Will it have a normal schedule? Will it be blended with the Live Tour schedule? Uh, will there be a team aspect to it, as we've seen uh, on the live side? What are we going to watch as fans when this thing comes to you know um, a, a conclusion in terms of the of the purchase? I don't know if it's going to be called the PGA Tour, Kevin. I just hope it's going to remain okay. uh, the PGA Tour. If you think about it, we're we're both from DC. U.S. Airways used to run you know basically all the flights out of National Airport. U.S. Airways bought American Airlines when American Airlines had the larger brand name, they kept American Airlines as the name, and U.S. Airways went away, even though U.S. Airways bought American Airlines. Well, look at it now. Live Golf isn't nearly the brand name. DP World Tour isn't nearly the brand name that the PGA Tour is. The PGA Tour is a monster brand in the world, in the United States, in sports, and I don't know what the name is going to be moving forward, but I'd like to think that they would keep it that way, but... You know, when you don't call all the shots, that's not exactly how things usually take place. What I think is going to happen for fans, Kevin, is it's going to be good. The best players in the world are going to once again uh, play against each other week in, week out. There will not be conflicting telecasts, conflicting fields, um, one versus the other. It's all going to be coming together. So if you're a fan of golf, if you're a fan of sports, you want to see the best players, the best teams face each other every single day, every single week. And I think that's what's going to happen. So the majors will not only be the best place to watch the best players on the planet, you'll also be able to see them week in, week out uh, in this new merger. And I think fans will benefit. Now, will sponsors jump on board? Will some people not like where the money comes from? Certainly. But for golf fans, and golfers themselves playing at the highest level, Kevin, they're going to be competing for more money, and they're going to be competing against the best players in the world more regularly. And to me, as a a golf fan, I think that benefits the fans. 
Yeah, I, I, I'll just in, inject this one um, this one thought slash opinion, and that is, uh, look, I, I, I until we see what the economics of this deal are, and my sense is it's probably going to be other than the fact of where the money is coming from and how it sort of evolved over the last year, it'll probably be a good thing for the PGA Tour economically. But as far as the Live Tour goes, Steve, I never watched it once. I never looked for it once. The players that had gone to that tour, for me, watching PGA Tour events weren't missed because those players did come. were playing in the majors, which did mean something to me. The Live Tour was irrelevant for, for me, and I think a lot of people felt the same way. Yes, I totally agree with you. The difference is... If you are in Ponte Vedra Beach, where the headquarters of the PGA Tour is, and you have lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit going forever, for years and years, this was never going to go away. Sponsors were not rising to the level of which the PGA Tour thought they would when this all came about a year ago and a year and a half ago because they needed to raise all the purses. That means the sponsors need to pump in more money and they weren't getting the return that they thought because the fields aren't as deep, some of the stars aren't playing, and you have a haves and have-nots. And, mm-hmm. and that's not what you need in professional sports. You know, it's, it's kind of like small market teams in professional sports in the team aspect as opposed to the larger markets. If you have the small markets literally never having a chance to win, then, then what do you have in that league? And in this case... On the PGA Tour level, sponsors needed to pump in tens of millions more, and they weren't willing to do it because the PGA Tour wasn't delivering on the best fields and not a fractured sport and the chatter. And by the way, if nobody was watching Live Golf, Kevin, but it was going head-to-head against the PGA Tour, and if you're getting a one or one-and-a-half rating, and they get a point two or point three. Well, you've got to figure those point two or point three people would be watching the PGA Tour at the same time. That matters to sponsors. That matters to television companies. I think that ESPN Plus, Golf Channel, NBC, CBS, for sure, had to be putting pressure on the PGA Tour and saying, "We just signed a new deal a couple of years ago, and you're not delivering on the the, the, the depth of fields and the product isn't the same, and we'd like some money back." And sponsors weren't stepping up. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things to it, Kevin, but follow the money. You know, this is a money thing, and I think the PGA Tour kind of looked into the future and saw all the losses, the discovery phase of all the things. You know, do you really want someone looking up Cinderella's skirt? They have a tax-exempt status. Remember when the NFL changed out of its tax-exempt status? Was that five, seven, ten years ago? It was a story at the time, but then it kind of went away. The reason they did that is because they didn't want anybody, again, looking up Cinderella's skirt. Well, the PGA Tour didn't want that either, and I think that and that the best way to get themselves out of this and get the game back to where it belongs and not be fractured was to merge with what was an enemy and now uh, is not a, no longer a foe, it's a friend. Yeah, I mean, you just used, you know, the word merge, but like you said at the beginning and and doing a lot of reading last night, it it was more allowing itself to be purchased. 
um, by Correct. this PIF. It's a, mer- it's a merger. It's a merger, Kevin. In yeah. in saying only. I mean, let, let's let's call this what it is. Yeah. This is a hostile takeover. When you have a hostile takeover in in the business sense, and this is what this is, but it just happens to be in our world in sports. A hostile takeover. This is the definition of a hostile takeover. You apply financial pressure to the entity you would like to control, and then when that entity has issues financially, you are there to inevitably help them out. And that's what took place. So yes, it's a merger, but remember this. We talked about Yasser. He's the, he's the man who runs the PIF in Saudi Arabia, and that's the Saudi, you know, the money. And the PIF is the private investment fund. They're the ones who pumped in all the money for Live Golf, and they're doing this, you know, because they're trying to, you know, change the way the world looks uh, at Saudi Arabia and have it be more of a diverse economy and not just oil-based and tourism and all kinds of things. Sports has something to do with that. That's why they're involved with right. soccer, with so much money. That's why they're involved with Formula One, and and golf was the next thing that they decided uh, to try to get involved in. He's going to be the most powerful person in all of golf. He's the chairman of the new entity. Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, was the most powerful man in all of golf, but now he's going to be the CEO, not the chairman of the new entity. And did they merge? Yes. But did they get bought? That's not a negative connotation. That's just reality. Yeah, and I think for those, you know, because you just mentioned soccer, you mentioned Formula One, um, and knowing, you know, that most of the people that are listening to this are big-time football fans, remember with the NFL in particular, it's not this. It's not the sponsors that generate the significant or majority amount of of revenue. It is the media companies. It is media dollars. It's television dollars that really do run the NFL. So unless PIF starts buying up CBS, Fox, um, ES, you know, uh, Disney, uh, NBC, etc., uh, Amazon Prime, um, I don't see that kind of Saudi influence happening in the NFL until, by the way, let me just mention, the NFL loosens up its restrictions in terms of who can buy franchises and who can't. As an example, Josh Harris paying $6 billion for this team, you know, is the highest uh, amount ever paid. And we saw the limited audience there was for it. And that's because they don't accept private equity or foreign money. Um, I would imagine that people like Josh Harris and his limited partners see a future down the road where the NFL loosens up its restrictions. And all of a sudden, whether it's private equity or, you know, foreign money, um, we then see the prices continue to skyrocket in terms of valuations. But I want to I get back to, to this thing. I mean, that's my view on how maybe some are feeling about, well, is the NFL next? I don't think the NFL is next for this. Um, unless, again, they start buying up media companies and, and etc. Do you have an opinion on that one way or the other? I don't think the PGA Tour uh, is the last sports entity that the PIF uh, wants to get involved with. Whether they get involved with the leagues themselves, uh, buying teams, or owning companies or investing in companies that are uh, advertising, uh, the messaging, I I just don't see how this is the last I agree with that. 
Uh, I, I just think that, the that NFL the Saudis, that the Saudis yeah. want to be involved. In. I agree with that. I just think that the NFL has a different business model than a lot of these other entities. I mean, they're you know the the, the, the significant majority of revenue comes from media. Um, not uh, sponsorships, yes. which is different than the PGA Tour and, and other sports. Anyway, I digress. Let I me agree, give, but, but yeah. Kevin, remember, remember, they own Newcastle at the Premier League. The Premier League is the NFL of soccer, yeah, and it is massive, massive around the world, especially in Europe, uh, in the UK, especially. But the revenue, I don't think it's similar to the PGA uh, to uh, the NFL, but it's it's pretty darn close. The, the Premier League is monstrous. They already own a team uh, in the Premier League. Now, the rules are different there, as you stated, but you can't tell me that behind the scenes when someone says, oh, you paid $6.05 billion for the for the commanders? Well, the next time a team comes up, why don't you come my way and I'm, I'll be happy to give you a little bit larger than that. I, I'd be careful, not you personally, but I'd be careful for people to think that the golf is where it ends as far as the PIF and Saudi Arabia's money um, infiltrating itself into American sports. Yeah, infiltrating, I don't disagree with at all, um, and certainly with all of the other sports. Purchasing the NFL and ending up having Yasir, whatever his last name is, running the NFL, I see that that's that, not going to happen. Yeah, I don't happen. see that, that, that happening with the NFL. All totally right. agree. Um, so. Oh, the players obviously were floored by this, and they're angry about this, and they're angry with Jay Monahan about this. Um, is it possible that when all of the details come out about this, that they're less mad because this is going to be, as you've described, a trillion dollar entity pumping hundreds of millions potentially into the into the PGA Tour? Yeah, I, look, money solves a lot of issues. And money basically rules the world when it comes to these types of things. I think at the end of the day, when all this shakes out, PGA Tour players are going to be playing against the best players in the world, and they're going to be playing for more money. So if that's what they do for a living, then that's probably a good thing. You can have an issue, like I said earlier, with where the if that's your prerogative. If you want to have an issue with where the money comes from. Right. But there's no debate that they're going to be playing for more money, uh, and this is going to make the PGA Tour, whatever the new entity is called, uh, more solvent. There's no question about that financially. The players are furious, Kevin. And they're furious because unlike the team sports in America, again, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA, the commissioner of those leagues works for the owners, and the owners negotiate collective bargaining agreements with the players and the players' union. There is no union on the PGA Tour. The commissioner of the PGA Tour, the way it is structured, the way the bylaws of the PGA Tour are, it's a player organization. He works for the players. They don't negotiate against themselves. So for Jay Monahan and the upper echelon of the PGA Tour to do this without any type of player interaction is incredibly rare. You can clearly see why they did it that way, but the players are not happy about it. And I think the players are going to give Jay a very difficult time. They did yesterday in a players-only meeting. Um, and I think it's going to be a very rough ride for Jay Monahan. But I do see an avenue for him either exiting or staying. 
if both things can be true at once. Exiting because the pressure will be too much and the players will just say, you're out of here. We don't want you to be our commissioner anymore. But staying because what he did yesterday, and both things can be true at once. He can be looked upon as untrustworthy to the players because he wasn't transparent to them, but also looking after their best interests because he just infused billions of dollars into the sport and got rid of live golf in one full swoop. So it just depends on your outlook. Yeah, and if he were to get run by the players, I think the PIF probably has some sort of golden parachute for him, don't you think? Uh, Yes, Uh, for for sure. I, I would not... I would not find Jay Monahan skipping any meals uh, and, his, and his children going hungry anytime soon. All right. So the and by you the know, way, yeah. Jay Monahan is a really. By the way, Kevin, yeah. he's a really good guy and was put in a really, really tough spot. Did he handle it perfectly all all this time? No, of course not. But nobody does. He did his best, um, and he's still doing his best. Uh, and he's a very, very good man. I, I just think he's in a very, very tough spot with his players right. Yeah, the problem is, of course, his position a year ago when all of this started, and then the yeah. final result a year later. And the PGA players, Steve, and you know, you know so much, many of them. They, those that stayed and passed on the eight and nine figure sums of money that were being offered um, along the way, uh, the money that, you know, obviously Bryson and Phil and Patrick Reed and, and Dustin and Brooks Kepka all took, they didn't take. And so they stayed loyal to the PGA Tour, and a year later, the live uh, golfers that took those unbelievable sums of money are now going to be back more likely than not playing PGA Tour events. Is that the source of the anger as much as anything else? And how will they, if at all, be made whole other than they'll be playing for more money when this you know, new entity you know, takes over? Yes. Passing on the, the tens, if not hundreds of millions, uh, is, a, is a massive issue with the players. But also... Um, just as big an issue to most of them because most of them did not have the ability to receive that kind of money. This was done without them knowing about it. And that's not how the PGA tour works. That's how, that's why they have a player policy board. Like the NFL and the other sports uh, in America, the team sports, this sport, again, the players have a say in what the business at hand is on the PGA tour. And in this particular case, they did not have a say. It can be done, but it's just not the way the PGA tour is structured. So it's a very difficult position for the players to be in, to welcome back the best in the world. They took the money and said a lot of nasty things back and forth. There's about the language back and forth. I mean, you know, getting nasty tweeting and, you know, punking people who cares about that stuff. If you didn't take the money, and you stayed and remained loyal because you were told to and because that was the right thing to do, and the PGA Tour asked you to be a spokesperson on its behalf while you're still competing as a player, and then all of a sudden, a year later, they turn around and all the things that you've been saying are just false because you're now taking the money from that entity which you said you never would and it was wrong and blah, blah, blah. I just think the guys feel like they 
look and sound like fools. Uh, and it, it's the money, clearly, but also the foolish nature of this uh, doesn't sit well with the guys either. You implied this at the start of your answer, but I actually hadn't thought of it this way. But for most of the PGA Tour players who were never going to be offered the kind of money that, you know, Kepka and DeChambeau and, and Phil and, and others got, um, this actually ultimately will benefit them because they will be playing for much bigger money um, on the tour. And they were never offered the opportunity for generational wealth uh, guaranteed by the PIF to begin with. The, the majority of players were not offered you know, deals by the Saudis Correct. to join the Live Tour. Um, all right, so... Um, oh, I, I, Greg Norman... Where does he end up after all of this? For those that don't know, well, Greg Norman was ta- you know was tapped by the PIF by the Saudis to run the Live Tour, and by the way, to recruit uh, all of the players. Easy to recruit when you're offering, you know, Phil Mickelson, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Same for DeChambeau and et cetera. But where does he end up after all of this? Well, Greg Norman promised the guys more money. Check. He promised the guys that they would merge with the PGA Tour eventually. Check. He promised the guys that he would, they would get world golf ranking points. Check. And he promised the guys that they would play in the major championships. Check. So Greg Norman, uh, to the chagrin, I mean, Greg Norman is not a popular man in golf. <laughs> kind of to say, to yeah. say minimally, and for him to be correct on all of this and deliver, mm-hmm. it's all going to come to fruition. Greg Norman's going to, you know, come out smelling like a rose in this thing. Phil Mickelson, the same thing. Yeah, uh, It's amazing that those two guys uh, are going to be looked upon as not only correct, but in some cases they're going to be heroic to some of these other golfers who, like you said, are going to be playing for more money and all going to be coming together. I mean, it's, it's an amazing turn of events. Um, it's amazing what's happened. Uh, in such a short time, uh, but money talks, man. And those guys were right. Greg and Phil uh, were correct in their gamble and their assessment. Uh, and the other players uh, who decided to stay and remain loyal are, are I don't know if they're going to be out the money, if they're never going to get paid the money, uh, but they didn't, they certainly didn't receive those tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that the other guys who went to live and now will be welcomed back, maybe not with open arms, but they are going to come together again. So they are going to have their cake and eat it too. It's amazing. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, and I think you would agree with me, uh, it, we're, we're talking specifically about the financial impact to all of these yes. players Correct. because, you know, it still matters to the families of 9-11 victims. It still matters to those that view Saudi Arabia as one of the biggest human rights violators uh, on the planet. Um, and, you know, that stuff won't go away. But ultimately, as we know, uh, especially as sports fans, money trumps all, um, typically. Uh, so, um, I, let's finish this up by just like I we we talked about it briefly, and I know the answers aren't fully there. But what is your guess? Are we gonna are we gonna see these players playing against each other in PGA Tour events or in some kind of new you know calendar? Um, you know, on a weekly basis, are there gonna be you know 
Uh, are they going to be able to play in shorts? Is there going to be music? Is there going to be a team aspect? Is there going to be 54 holes, no cut? Like, what do you see golf being when this, you know, this merger slash purchase, uh, you know, is over and they're moving forward with this new, you know, entity? The shorts and the music, I'm not sure about, uh, but it's got to be 72 holes. There's got to be a cut, I would think. Um, but again, one of the things that's so strange about yesterday they were afraid it was going to get leaked, so they had to put out a statement at some point. They did that yesterday, and they did that, even though it's a, a monster initiative, they did that without the details being fully baked. So we don't really know. I would guess, I would guess, Kevin, that you're going to see a cut in 72 holes um, and have it be more traditional professional golf, but I don't know that for a fact. I just cannot imagine how the PGA Tour and its players would ever stand for 54 holes, music blaring, shorts, shotgun start. I I just can't see uh, that being the the model going forward. Now, will there be a team aspect? It always seems strange to me. I never watched Live Like You Did. I I I didn't watch it, yeah. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. Um, And it didn't hook me. So I don't know how that's going to take place. But, again, the details are yet to be determined because they're not fully baked. And they made that announcement yesterday, again, because uh, they, were, they were afraid it was going to get leaked. All right. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that we didn't cover on this? Because I think there's so many different no, things. Just, no, no, we covered it all. I'm, I'm okay. glad, too, because i got to go cap on this flight. <laughs> all right, go hop but on the yeah, flight. We, we, we'll, talk, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk football next time. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, I love you, Jesse. All right, thanks to Steve. Thanks to Sam. Fortier back tomorrow. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.